Between the essential reads and the English essentials, I spend a lot of time writing scripts. Now, I could do this from home, but it's a lot nicer to get out of the house and work in a coffee shop or a cafe. I could use my phone data to check articles and research for my scripts, but that can get expensive fast. It's so much easier to use the Wi-Fi at my favourite coffee shops. Well, thanks to Surfshark VPN, I don't have to worry about public Wi-Fi networks stealing my data. I simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers in 100 countries and continue working without having to worry about anyone stealing my data. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 a month on a two-year plan. And work worry-free wherever you please. Have you ever received a call or text from a number that you don't know, saying that a package you ordered hasn't been delivered because they need just a little bit more information from you? You don't remember ordering a package, and then start wondering how this scammer got your number. Well, anytime you go online and accept cookies or buy anything online, websites can keep your data and sell it to data brokers who create a digital ID of you. They can sell this digital ID to the highest bidder, and lo and behold, a bunch of scammers get a ton of information about you that you never agreed to give them. Well, with Ecogni, this is no longer an issue. All you need to do is sign up, and Ecogni will use the GDPR and CCPA and other privacy laws to get these companies to remove your data from their networks, protecting you and your data from scammers and anyone else who wants to use your data against you. Use the link in the description or episode notes and get Ecogni today for $6.49 a month on a one-year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. We're starting, finally, on a new book, One Flow Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey. The story itself follows a man in an insane asylum after some pretty disastrous events in uh, the Vietnam War, and uh, some events ensue, including a very, very dodgy game of cards, and there's a very despicable nurse, and we'll leave it at that. If you wish to support the show, you can join the book club, say it's the join whatever, on YouTube, or you can click in the link below and you could subscribe directly to the Spotify channel of this. It is the easiest way to support me. You don't really get any perks from it, it's purely just because you like my content and you want to keep it free. Um, because it takes a lot of time to do, and I also need to buy food. The book is also broken up into three parts. I'm going to separate those how I see fit, um, because I can't just do like four super long hour, several long hour chapters, um, purely for my sanity and uh, also YouTube algorithmy things, and I imagine podcast algorithmy things as well. Um, they probably won't get as many views or definitely not as much watch time, say as a 30 minute video, 25 minute video, whatever. So I'm going to break them up at points that I think see fit and... Yeah, that's sort of what we have to do with books like this. I did the same in Fahrenheit 451. Please check out that book. Fantastic. Let's get started. Trigger warning. This book was written in the 1950s and contains views and words that were used in that time period. I do not agree with these words and views and would never use them in my daily life. I shall be ducking the audio to bleep any offensive language so that this book can be uploaded to its appropriate platforms, but apart from that, the book will stay as it was intended to be read. 
If you find this sort of language disturbing or triggering, then please listen to another audiobook. Thank you for your understanding. Isaac. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kessie Part 1 They're out there. Black boys in white suits up before me to commit sex acts in the hall and get it mopped up before I can catch them. They're mopping when I come out of the dorm. All three of them, sulky and hating everything. The time of day, the place they're at here, the people they gotta work around. When they hate like this, better if they don't see me. I creep along the wall, quiet as dust in my canvas shoes, but they got special, sensitive equipment to text my fear, and they all look up, all three at once, eyes glittering out of the black faces, like the hard glitter of radio tubes out of the back of an old radio. Here's the chief. Super chief, fellas. Oh, Chief Broom. Here you go, Chief Broom. Stick them up in my hand and motion the spot they aim for me to clean today. And I go. One swats the back of my leg with a broom handle to make me hurry past. Oh, you look at him shag it. Big enough to eat apples off my head. He mind me of a baby. They laugh, and I hear them mumbling behind me, heads close together. Hum of black machinery, humming hate, and death and other hospital secrets. They don't bother talking out aloud about their hate secrets when I'm nearby, because they think I'm deaf and dumb. Everybody thinks so. I'm cagey enough to fool them that much. And if my being half-Indian ever helped me in any way in this dirty life, it helped me being cagey. Helped me all these years. I'm mopping near the ward door when a key hits it from the other side, and I know it's the big nurse by the way the lockwork cleaved to the key. Soft and swift and familiar. She's been around Locke so long. She slides through the door with a gust of cold and locks the door behind her. And I see her fingers trail across the polished steel, tip of each finger the same color as her lips. Funny orange, like the tip of a soldering iron. Color so hot or so cold, if she touches you with it, you can't tell which. She's carrying her woven wicker bag, like the ones the Yumka tribe sells out along the hot August highway. A back shape of a toolbox, with a hemp handle. She's had it all the years I've been here. It's a loose weave, and I can see inside it. There's no compact, or lipstick, or woman stuff. She's got that bag full of a thousand parts she aims to use in her duties today. Wheels and gears, cogs, polished to a hard glitter. Tiny pills that gleam like porcelain. Needles, forceps watchmaker's pliers, rolls of copper wire. She dips a nod at me as she goes past. I let the mop push me back to the wall and smile and try to foul her equipment up as much as possible by not letting her see my eyes. They can't tell so much about you if you got your eyes closed. In my dark, I hear the rubber heels hit the tile and the stuff in her wicker bag clash with the jar of her walking as she passes me in the hall. She walks stiff, when I open my eyes, she's down the hall, about to turn into the glass nurse's station, where she'll spend the day sitting at her desk and looking out of her window and making notes on what goes out in front of her in the day room during the next eight hours. Her face looks pleased and peaceful with the thought. Then, she sights those black boys. They're still down there together, mumbling to one another. And they didn't hear her come on the ward. They sense she's glaring down at them now, but it's too late. They should have knew better than to group up and mumble together when she was due on the ward. 
Their faces bob apart, confused. She goes into a crouch and advances on where they'd be trapped in a huddle at the end of the corridor. She knows what they've been saying, and I can see she's furious, clean out of control. She's going to tear the black bastards limb from limb, she's so furious. She swells up, swells to her back, splitting out of the white uniform, and she lets her arms section out long enough to wrap around the three of them five, six times. She looks around her with a swivel of her huge head. Nobody up to see, just old Broom Brandon, the half-breed Indian back there, hiding behind his mop, and can't talk to call for help. So she really lets herself go, and her painted smile twists, stretches to an open snarl, and she blows up bigger and bigger, big as a tractor, so big I can smell the machinery inside the way you smell a motor pulling a big load. I hold my breath and figure, my god, this time they're gonna do it. This time they let the hate build up too high and overloaded, and they're gonna tear one another to pieces before they realize what they're doing. But just as she starts crooking up those sectioned arms round the black boys, and they go ripping at her underside with the mop handles, all the patients start coming out of the dorms to check on what's the hullabaloo, and she has to change back before she's caught in the shape of her hideous real self. By the time the patients get their eyes rubbed to where they can halfway see what the racket's about, all they see is the head nurse, smiling and calm and cold, as usual, telling the black boys that they'd best not stand in a group when it is Monday morning, and there is a lot to get done on the first morning of each week. Mean old Monday morning. You know, boys. Yeah, Miss Ratchet. And we have quite a number of appointments this morning. So perhaps, if you're standing there in a group talking isn't too urgent. Yeah, Miss Ratchet. She stops and nods at some of the patients come to stand around and stare out of eyes all red and puffy with sleep. She nods once to each. Precise, automatic gesture. Her face is smooth, calculated, and precision-made, like an expensive baby doll. Skin like flesh-colored enamel, blend of white and cream, and baby blue eyes. Small nose, pink little nostrils. Everything working together, except the color on her lips and fingernails, and the size of her bosom. A mistake was made somehow in manufacturing, putting those big, womanly breasts on what would have otherwise been a perfect work, and you could see how bitter she is about it. The men are still standing and waiting to see what she was onto the black boys about. So she remembers seeing me and says, And since it is Monday, boys, why don't we get a good head start on the week by shaving poor Mr. Bromden first this morning, before the after-breakfast rush on the shaving room, and see if we can't avoid some of the... <sighs> disturbance he tends to cause, don't you think? Before anybody can turn to look at me, I duck back in the mop closet, jerk the door, shut dark after me, hold my breath. Shaving before you get breakfast is the worst time. When you got something under your belt, you're stronger and more wide awake. And the bastards who work for the combine aren't so apt to slip one of their machines on you in place of an electric shaver. But when you shave before breakfast, like she has me do some mornings, 6.30 in the morning, in a room full of white walls and white basins, and long tube lights in the ceiling, making sure there aren't any shadows, and faces all around you, trapped, screaming behind the mirrors. Then what chance you got against one of their machines? I hide in the mop closet and listen, 
my heart beating in the dark, and I try to keep from getting scared. Try to keep my thoughts someplace else. Try to think back and remember things about the village and the big Columbia River. Think about, uh, one time Papa and me were hunting birds in a stand of cedar trees near the Dalles. But like always, when I try to place my thoughts in the past and hide there, the fear close at hand seeps in through the memory. I can feel that least black boy out there, coming up the hall, smelling out for my fear. He opens up his nostrils like black funnels, his outsized head, bobbing this way and that as he sniffs. And he sucks in fear from all over the ward. He's smelling me now. I can hear him snort. He don't know where I'm hid, but he's smelling, and he's hunting round. I try to keep still. Papa tells me to keep still. Tells me that the dog senses a bird somewhere right close. We borrowed a pointer dog from a man in the dolls. All the village dogs are no-count mongrels, Papa says. Fish gut eaters, and no class at all. This here dog, he's got instinct. I don't say anything, but I already see a bird in a scrub cedar, haunched in a gray knot of feathers. Too much smell around for him to point for sure. The bird's safe, as long as he keeps still. He's holding out pretty good, but the dog keeps sniffing and circling louder and closer. Then the bird breaks, feathers springing, jumps out the cedar into the bird shop from my papa's gun. The least black boy and one of the bigger ones catch me before I can get ten steps out of the mop closet and drag me back into the shaving room. I don't fight or make any noise. If you yell, it's just tougher on you. I hold back the yelling. I hold back till they get to my temples. I'm not sure it's one of those substitute machines and not a shaver till it gets to my temples. Then I can't hold back. It's not a willpower thing anymore when they get to the temples. It's a button pushed. It says air raid, air raid. Turns me on so loud it's like no sound. Everybody yelling at me. Hands over their ears from behind a glass wall. Faces working round in talk circles, but no sound from their mouths. My sound soaks up all other sound. They start the fog machine again, and it's snowing down cold and white all over me like skim milk. So thick I might even be able to hide in it if they didn't have a hold on me. I can't see six inches in front of me through the fog, and the only thing I can hear over the wail I'm making is the big nurse whoop and charge up the hall while she crashes patience out of her way with that wicker bag. I hear her coming, but I can't hush my hollering. I holler till she gets there. They hold me down while she jams wicker bag and all into my mouth, and shoves it down with a mop handle. A blue-tick hound bays out there in the fog, running scared and lost because he can't see. No tracks on the ground but the ones he's making, and he sniffs in every direction with his cold, red rubber nose and picks up no scent but his own fear. Fear, burning down into him, like steam. It's gonna burn me just that way, telling about all this, about the hospital, about her, and the guys, and about McMurphy. I've been so long silent now, it's gonna roar out of me, like floodwaters, and you're gonna think the guy telling this is ranting and raving, my god. You think this is too horrible to have really happened, this is too awful to be the truth. But please, 
It's still hard for me to have a clear mind thinking on it. But it's the truth. Even if it didn't happen. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, please do subscribe, because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave a review. It is the easiest way to get this in front of as many people as possible. Same with uh, sharing on YouTube. And uh, if you really want to support me, please join the channel in the description box below on both platforms, Spotify, Podcasty Places, and YouTube. It is the easiest way to support me in turning this not just from a hobby, but into my full-time job. What a great first chapter. I hope that you liked the voice that I chose for Nurse Ratchet. I just thought that it would be slightly creepy to have more of an AI-style voice go on for her. It's just very, I find, uneasy. Uh, So I hope that you enjoyed that too. Once again, thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.